Hello, America! Welcome to another episode of your favorite A24 production-centric podcast. A24 in a can. Oh, wait, no, that's just me, because I usually forget um, whether or not uh, we're supposed to buy liquor or not. Oops. No, no, no. This is A24 on the Rocks, and I am your host for this episode, Blaze Fitzgerald, Ryan the First. And right now, dear viewer and illustrious panel before me, I have just one simple question for you. Do you want to live deliciously? That's right, tonight we are reviewing and analyzing 2015's film, The Witch. But before we delve any further, I believe introductions are in order. My name once again is Blaze Ryan. Tonight I am drinking The Black Phillip. I will have another one of our uh, distinguished panel members explain that. But next up for introduction, we have the wisest man in Wisconsin, the Magi of Milwaukee, the cleric of cinematography, the comparable Mr. Kalashak. Please introduce yourself, sir. Wow, I don't think I can introduce myself at all after that. That was brilliant. Hello world, my name is Kevin Kacon Konacek, and I have chosen to live deliciously tonight. I am drinking one of the most fine-tasting bourbons in my collection. It's not even a bourbon, it's actually a rye whiskey. It's uh, called Seagrass by Barrel, and it's a uh, rye whiskey finished in Martinique rum, Madeira, and apricot brandy barrels. And at 119.3 proof, it kind of tastes like jet fuel, but... Delicious jet fuel. Kick his ass, so I got that going for me. Yeah. All right, and uh, up next we have... Uh, my name's Eric, and I'm also drinking that Black Philip Martini, and it has blue carousel, blackberry liqueur, and vodka. I got absolute vodka, and a touch of lemon zest in a martini glass, and it's pretty nice. Up next we have Kelly. Hey, this is Kelly. I'm also drinking that Black Philip Martini. And we got that recipe from the Martini Shot, who yes, he reviews a Brandon lot of Johnston. A24 movies yeah. as well. So his cocktails are delicious, and we've enjoyed every single one we've made so far. Cole had to take a spiritual journey in the Mojave Desert tonight, so hopefully, you know, he doesn't run into any um, homeless people, but I guess we'll have to see. Good luck, Cole. We'll see you in two weeks. Yep. Good luck, buddy. So, just a quick uh, elevator pitch of the plot. Um, the film takes place in the early American settlement times of the northeastern United States and circles around a household of English pilgrims who have been banished from their colony due to religious differences. After leaving the tribunal, William, played by Ralph Einstein, and Catherine, played by Kate Dickey, move their kids and construct themselves a farm on an isolated place, piece of property near the edge of the woods. They're completely isolated from the neighbors and the life that they once knew. Soon enough, Catherine has her own new baby named Samuel, and all seems to be going well for the growing family, until Samuel is, disappears, is kidnapped, and possibly slain. It's a terrible catastrophe, but it's particularly awful for the eldest of the children, Thomason, played by the lovely Anya Taylor-Joy. 
She was the last one to be with Samuel, which leads to her self-blame over his vanishing, and well as her mother accusing her for the terrible crimes. So, I know how we usually start. We usually do a vibe check of the opening scene, but... I think considering since uh, Mr. Eggers, besides being writer and director of this film, he's also an accomplished and well-regarded set production and costume designer. And he did an astonishing five years of extensive research on 1600s New England uh, when making this movie. So I would like everyone to please provide their opinion on the setting and cinematography. Uh, did this period place put you in the period? Kevin, let's start with you. Absolutely. You could see right off the bat from the very first scene that the dedication to costume design and period timed placement was going to be absolutely critical for the rest of this film. Upon viewing it, um, while you're watching it, you absolutely get that impression that our director and our writer really took his time um, on doing the research, right? As far as the language is concerned, the script is something directly out of the 1600s. It's very, very um, authentic, historical they put a lot of attention to detail when it comes to all of those things. Even something as simple as our costume designs, just making sure that it was really uh, authentic to the time using the, the correct uh, materials, uh, especially even like something as like building our sets, like the thatch work and things are, are very authentic to what you would see in a New England colonial house. And I just think that you start out the film with all those attention to details and it really puts you in that place and allows you to kind of fall into the film uh, for the rest of it. So for my point, it definitely put me right in the mode and uh, was right involved right off the beginning. Wonderful. Kelly, as our de feature designer, what did you feel about uh, the set production, the costume production, all, all, the, all the rest? Yeah, I mean, the attention to detail is something that I hope is appreciated as much as the thought that went into it. And by that, I mean even one of the first scenes that we have, they have kind of this council that's kicking out the family that we're going to follow for the rest of the story. And they're powdered wigged. They're a little bit makeup. And I'm looking at these men. I'm like, they take themselves very seriously. And this is like high society, how they look at the time. And it feels so gives authenticity immediately too, because it's not like over the top, but it's not hiding away from how ridiculous the kind of stylings were at the time. And then they take the time throughout the movie with the costuming to even show it off in ways like untying just those little tiny pieces of threads that would keep a shirt together. They show the shift dress underneath the corsets. They show the loosening of how those corsets would have been made at the time. It's something that I, I greatly appreciate and I'm glad that they give it as much time as they do because it took a lot of thought. You said five years, I didn't even know that, but it makes sense. And I'm glad that that's the first thing that we're talking about with this movie because it's necessary to really set the scene and the story in the really authentic way that they do. Absolutely, absolutely. Eric, Mr. Cinematography, what did, did you feel that uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Eggers did, um, did it justice showing this old New England um, vibe? Totally. Uh, I mean, this was his first full-length film, and I think when you said, like, he was working on it for five years, he, like, developed the script a long time ago, and as is often with first-time filmmakers, it took a while to get picked up. So I'm sure he wrote other scripts in the meanwhile. He's from Lee, New Hampshire, and apparently in his childhood he had a big obsession with witches and went to the Pilmouth Plantation a lot when he was a kid. And you could tell that all of this is a great inspiration for this film. This is his first film, and as we see in The Northman and the Lighthouse, he does 
meticulous, meticulous research for every single one of one of his films. And you can tell in this dialogue, he really knows old New England dialogue. Literally, at the end of the film, it says the, the film's dialogue comes from journals, diaries, and court records. So it's like he literally lifted this off of uh, journals, diaries, and court records. And he really wanted to create an authentic experience for the viewer like it was never before seen or heard. And I think he did that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then if you look at his other work, The Lighthouse, The Northman, I mean, you can see that he puts that yep. attention to detail into every film that he uh, um, does. Yep. And it's something that I think a lot of uh, the general moving going public probably doesn't appreciate as much as they probably should. And I'm glad that all three of you do. Kevin, did you want to add? Yeah, there was um, some interesting interviews that came out after this film where Robert Eggers basically said that he wanted the viewer to be put as a fly in the wall on what it would be like to be a Puritan in the 1600s. There was even so much to the point when he was trying to sell this movie uh, earlier that he wanted it to be zero accompaniment scored. He wanted it to be just dialogue. He wanted it to be really, truly just what you were seeing as if you were actually part of that. Later, he realized that to get picked up that he had to kind of make it more of a genre film and kind of fill those roles. But his true intent really was from a historical aspect. And all those primary sources that Eric referenced are the reason that this movie is actually so brilliant. is because it kind of toes the line of what's believable and what's not believable in a sense of the supernatural and realistic. And that's just because of the preparation that Robert Eggers put into this film. So, well done. One correction, Plymouth Plantation, not uh, Plymouth. I... I got messed up. I read P-L-I-M-O-T-H, which is much different from the Plymouth, Michigan, which I live nearby. So, And just yeah. for a point of clarification, <laughs> these guys weren't actually the Pilgrims either. They were set a group that came 10 years after the original Pilgrims, and they were kind of a separation too. So the Pilgrims were part of uh, the separationist group of the Church of England, where the Puritans that we're watching in this film are more of just the, they wanted to kind of reform the church. They weren't really trying to break away from it. So just a small historical point. Listen, as long as I get my Quaker oats, I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> the movie is generally panned by uh, the large movie-going audience um, because it goes basically at a snail pace. It's it's uh, it's a slow burn, I think we can all agree. Um, what are your thoughts on Mr. Egger's commentary to make the pacing of a horror film like this compared to uh, contemporary horror films of its time, such as The Nun? Do you guys think that the pacing was fine? Would you wish it would have had more action? Kevin, since you're the first newbie, what, what did you feel with the pacing? Okay. Um, I feel like this, compli- yeah, this question is a little complicated um, in the sense that I don't want the pacing to be a reason that I'm bashing this film for any stretch of the imagination. I think that the pacing is very critical in what this movie gives you. Within the first 10 minutes of our film, uh, spoiler alert for everybody who's now not still here with us, um, we have a... Oh, we'll call it a baby grinder session where we basically yes. have the a taking of an infant and we have a, a violent yeah. scene resulting in the death uh, and the baby shampoo or whatever you want to call it that comes in relation to it. And we get that within the first 10 minutes of the film. Okay. So that pacing wise, there's not a lot more you're going to come from as far as like you hit that right off the bat and now you need to kind of slow it down and allow the audience to digest what the hell you just saw. Did I find it? going a little bit slow in the middle of it with some of the long dialogue, absolutely. But I think that was also just because of kind of what you were put to as a viewer. The Old English is is hard to pay attention to. It's like Shakespeare. You really have to be in the mode to kind of take that all in. And if you're not ready for it or not expecting it, it kind of can lag a little bit. 
I fully expect on my second watching of this film to not have any of that, to really be anticipatory on what's happening next and not feel that lag in the pace. Um, but overall, I thought that it, it hit the high moments when it needed to. It picked up some of the slower parts with some interesting dialogue pieces, and it didn't drag so much for me to me really come away from it being like, what the hell did I just watch like some viewers did? Uh, Eric, uh, same question. What Did you think the pacing was uh, on point, or would you wish it would have sped up a little bit, get to the point? It was perfect for me. I like I love slow burns. I love uh, films that slowly build up to a crescendo, and this did everything I wanted uh, it to, and it, it's a mark of Robert Eggers' films, and it's why I love him as a director. I do want to touch on that baby-mashing scene. Uh, the... The theme in that baby mashing scene, it made it sound like she was actually, like, tapping the masher uh, onto the baby uh, as it was happening. And this is what pro-lifers think liberals do in their spare time. Uh, The baby Uh, blood motion and everything, it's it's insane. He's not wrong. (laughs) All right, so, Kelly, I think you're more the middle ground, perhaps. So, what's your thoughts? How do you mash your babies? No, I'm kidding. What's the pace? (laughs) i think the pacing is quite good um i don't think if it went any faster that it would be as much of i'm just gonna go ahead and say this movie's a piece of art and it wouldn't be if it was paced any differently if it was like if the drops of like actual things that are gonna scare you were placed any differently like Mm -hmm. I feel like this movie is art for art's sake. It's not made like The Nun, if we're using that as an example, where that's like a crowd pleaser. That's like a event you go out to with your friends as like a Friday night. But The Witch is a different thing. And I think that because of the way that it was all crafted together, it has more of an impact. Like I feel smarter walking away from this movie too. And I also think if it was paced any faster with easing yourself into the dialect if it was any quicker it would be harder to get into that world and that's a huge part of it too it's a really immersive kind of experience and i don't even necessarily agree with it being a slow burn even though this movie is always called that because it builds but it has places that is like horror impact over and over and over again and though the end does come with I guess the swell, I don't think it's necessarily like the burn that it's described as. I feel like it's like a it's like a fireplace mm, with cracking logs. Ooh, mm. I like that. I love I see, love that I, description. I think you're actually right though, not to cut in there, because we see little examples throughout this entire film. We talk about it right having that, you know, we get that big huge moment within the first ten minutes and then every little thing that happens to that family is another log on that fire, another ratchet on the tension, another thing that brings us to a climax. And while there are elements of a slow burn, I agree. I don't think it's like that, aha, holy, you know, we'll call it Jesus moment in this particular film. Um, And I think that it's well done because of it. You look at the classic, like, story arc, I think that's something anybody who studies story, you kind of get the come up on the story arc, and then you get a come down at the end. This thing is just... Uh, straight line, straight up, up to a crescendo, up to the peak of the roller coaster, 
and then you get stuck at the top of the roller coaster. Right, and you never go down the other side. It's like <laughs> yeah. someone yep. described it as like a ratchet where you just kept going on the tension level, yep. and instead of it breaking or releasing the tension, it's just the whole freaking movie is just straight up yeah. just tension, it's like anxiety. If you were based. on a roller coaster, you kept going up, and you were like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, and you just keep going up and up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a great way to describe it. You guys it. are all great descriptors on what this film is. Um, I, I would compare it to a brisket. Uh, where you got to put it in the oven, you got to love it. You know, you, you you can taste the ending, and it just doesn't come. It doesn't come, and then finally, it just melts off the bone, and you're just like, "This is what I came to the movies for." Now, I can also see a bunch of people being like pissed off leaving this movie, right? Just being like, "Oh, what did I just watch? I thought that was garbage." Like expecting something completely. Oh, different oh, like like I said, like when I say that. like general like movie odds, like when you look at the Rolling Stones, Roger Ebert, you know. A lot of them panned it for being too slow and, you know, too di- too dialogue heavy. You look at the Rotten Tomatoes, right? 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think the, the, the user score is extraordinarily different than right. the critics. And score that's, on this you movie. know, like, like Kelly said, you go to certain, like, movie theaters to see paranormal activity because you want to see your friends shit their pants, you know? And this is more of a existential <laughs> dread that you feel throughout the movie. And it just strings you along, strings you along. And, um, you know, just to put my two cents in, I agree with all of you. I think the pacing is wonderful, and I really think that it earns the uh, endings that it gets. So, Okay, Kevin, I got it. So The Witch got a 90% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, right, from, from, the critics. from critics. 60% from the audience. 60, okay. okay, so you're saying that the audience yes. score yes. was much lower. Correct. Okay, yeah. And then Roger Ebert was also dead at this time. So, what? <laughs> like, uh, RogerEbert.com. They All still right. have well, that website. Let's just nitpick everything. Please, I, I like <laughs> points of I like what you here. said about it earning the ending that it gets. Because yeah. I, I like Thank that you. wording that you used. I think that that's very true. Because um, something I was thinking about while watching this movie as well is there's this little bit of like a witch hunt that goes on in the middle of it and it's i love the paranoia and you can't have a witch story without paranoia Mm -hmm. i like that the decision was to make it sequestered in one family instead of it being a witch hunt for like a whole entire colony or village because that relationship between the family members is so much more intimate and it's so much more small scale and it, the amount of dread with every single thing that ends up happening oh, is just that That's get ahead of ourselves, but it's amazing because, like, when you think of, like, the regular Ritz stories, you think of, like, villagers accusing other villagers. But these are people that you live with, you grow up with, and they're blindingly pointing blame at each other. And we'll get to it later, but yes, that is a very poignant point. The other big issue, this is one that I kind of have to agree with. We kind of already touched on it already, but the dialect and the accents made me thank God for closed captioning because I could barely understand, especially William. When William was in his uh, crying modes, I would not be able to understand him without closed captioning. Do you think that was a help or a hindrance for the overall story? I'm sure it helped with setting the uh, the tone of the movie for a movie watcher. It, it's very, it's almost like hearing a second language. Eric was. Was the dialect okay in your opinion, or did you, like me, bend to the power of technology? I thought I I didn't bend to the power of technology this time. I've watched this twice before. It might have just kind of come along more for me this time. But what I took away from him using Old English, one, it made it very authentic. It made it 
feel like you were in the time, but two, I feel like the imagery is so powerful in this film. The director of photography, the whole framing of this film was so powerful that you don't really even need as much of the, to, to understand as much of the dialogue to get what's going on. Like, I kind of understood what was going on at every point without even really understanding the dialogue the first time I heard I saw this film. Robert Eggers, he just did such a great job of directing it to where you knew what was going on, even if you didn't exactly understand what they were saying at every point. I'll piggyback off of that. This isn't the first time that I watched this movie either. And I haven't used closed captions either time. I definitely feel like I only grasped about 60 to 70% of the spoken words. But that goes to show the power of the actors because I could grasp what was being conveyed and what the message mm-hmm. was at the end of at the end, end of the scene. So though I mean that feels weird to say like I didn't necessarily hear every single word, but I understand what they mean, but it, you kind of do and I, I know that I'm gonna come back to this movie again and again and I feel like I'm gonna pick up more and more. And I like that that's kind of an aspect of it. That's a, that's a very interesting perspective. Uh, Kevin, as the newbie, are you with so, me? I have or? <laughs> a couple things to say on this one. I'm with you initially in the sense that, yes, it was difficult to hear. I alluded to it earlier in one of my other comments. I felt like it was like a Shakespeare play. Once you kind of get into hearing it for the first 5, 10, 15 minutes, your brain starts picking up on things or you're ignoring all of these and kind of and days and putting it into your brain as as a part but i do want to touch on i think there's a really useful element of the closed captioning in this film that i'm going to use the next time around and that is having it on during the things like black philip this the song from the twins when they're talking about the the black philip i want to hear the lyrics to all that song i want to hear the i want to see the exact phrasing of the the demonic uh, possessed screaming prayer of Caleb or what the twins are saying in those moments where they're kind of getting, you know, all, all possessed. I think that from what I've read, that's all very accurate to the times mm-hmm. Like he took actual accounts of children being possessed during that time period and used uh, those, those scripts in, in here. And I think that having those subtitles might make it a little bit more poignant on exactly what they're seeing in those moments. Uh, I don't think I'd watch it with the whole thing with the subtitles on. It just takes me out of it. I'm not a big fan of subtitles in general. But I do think in this film that it adds a second layer of authenticity to it, uh, especially in some of those crazier moments. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, the first time I saw this movie was in theaters. Um, this was basically my, uh, from what I could basically say, my uh, getting my cherry pop with uh, A24. And there, like like Kevin said, that Black Phillips song. There was that time where William is shirtless in the rain, like crying to God, and like literally, it just it, it might as well be Arabic because I cannot understand two words of it. And there was it, it left me wanting in those parts. But I do agree with Eric and Kelly as well that you know, a there's more for you to find out on your next watch because you know when to pay attention, and. B, the cinematography and, you know, just the way that they set the scene, you always know how someone's at least feeling. So I guess they do a really, really, really good job at conveying emotion without words. You can just see it in the uh, setting as a whole. So I do I do agree with all of you, but I am in that camp where it's like, I need subtitles, especially when I'm reviewing a movie, because if someone said something, I, I don't know if I would get it wrong or not. Um, but yeah, great discussion. I really loved all your guys' input on that. Uh, and shout out to uh, 
Jaron Blaschke, I guess, is the guy that does all of Robert Eggers' uh, cinematography for all of his films. This mm. one, The Lighthouse, and The Northman. Well, that guy deserves a raise no matter what. Because yeah. shout out. <laughs> yeah, amazing work. Mm. Jaron Blaschke, good job. <laughs> okay, so throughout the movie, the idea of supernatural forces are thought to be at play. You look at Black Phillip, you look at the Witch's Coven. Uh, Tomlinson and Mercy and Jonas were all accused of witchcraft at some point in the film. Within the context of the movie, is the supernatural elements an actual threat, or do you lean towards the that it's all coincidence and this extremely religious family simply use it as a pun intended scapegoat? So basically, I'm asking you guys, what do you think? Is this a psychological horror or a supernatural horror? Eric, we had kind of had a talk about this before we started the uh, recording, so uh, I want to get your input on it first. I think uh, Robert Eggers wanted to make this ambiguous for sure. And I guess at the time, there was something called ergot poisoning going on where it was a fungus that grew on rye wheat and corn, and it caused hallucinations, convulsions, psychosis. So you could, you could actually blame ergot poisoning for everything that happened in this film if you wanted to. It would make it a lot more lame, I think, um, if you just blamed it all on that. And so I choose to believe that this was all witchcraft, sorcery, and the devil. Because uh, it just makes the film a lot more fun. And I think Robert Eggers wanted to make this more open-ended. And so, yeah, I'm going to believe that uh, Black Phillip was Lucifer. And I'm going to believe that uh, there, were, there was a witch in the woods, multiple witches in the woods. And uh, that... You know, this is all about sorcery and witchcraft. All right, Kevin, is this more of a shining for you or more of a paranormal oh. activity? <laughs> On My initial reaction is I'm going to answer that it's more of a shining than paranormal activity. Ooh. But, but what Eric said is so damn poignant because the director really, really wants the viewer to make his own decision. By putting us in a, an overly authentic scenario from the setting to the words to everything we're seeing, if that could actually have been what 1630 looked like, then those people living in that isolated forest could absolutely 100% believe what's happening to them was a witch. In their life, in their times, that wasn't supernatural. That was as real as... Oh, I don't know, it's a bad description. But in their brain, like that was exactly what could have been happening at that time period. And so Robert Eggers is going to leave us to think about that. Is it a commentary on the family? As Kelly alluded to earlier, like their interactions to each other are so critical to this film. You know, They've been around each other their entire lives, and all of a sudden they're like accusing each other of murder and all of these crazy other things that happen. And so it's maybe that's what makes this movie so good. Within the first 10 minutes, we see a witch literally grinding up a baby. Like, yes, that's supernatural AF. But as the rest of the film kind of progresses, then you can kind of go, well, wait, what would you do in this circumstance if if you were put in the fact that you were the last one to see the infant and the infant disappeared randomly? You were the last person with your brother in the woods and all of a sudden he comes back, like, hypothermic and possessed by Satan. Like, these are all real-life situations in theory. And you kind of have to ask yourself, what would you do? I, man, it's just a great question, and it's what brings us back and what makes this movie just so good. All right, Kelly, can you follow that up? Right. <laughs> you, you know the, the old commercial-turned-meme that she, like, holds up the taco and says, why not both? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. I definitely lean more towards it's actually a supernatural story, and all of these things that we read today that 
these real people went through and fully believed that there was witchcraft going on. What if there actually just was? What if that stuff did happen? And we talk ourselves out of it, but maybe this is the real story, maybe. And then it made worse by the paranoia, because of course that would happen. So it is both. It's psychological and Sorry, it's had a brain moment. Witches. That's the that's the fairy tale, right? That's the folktale that we're yeah. talking about, is that this family could have been a family that someone talked about, and then they got excommunicated from the church and then never saw them again. And so you create a story about what happens. And that's why mm-hmm. folktales about witches exist in general, because you have situations like this to... to Peripholate them to the rest of the world. Brilliant! <laughs> that is IQ. Something else I wanted go ahead. to add too. I- IQ what though? Before I go IQ on. IQ 9000. I was going to do another meme. <laughs> uh. It's over 9000! <laughs> but part of it too, with spoiler alert, when William dies, not even in the most. Su- like, those deaths become less supernatural. What happens to Caleb? What happens to Sam? We even see that from just like our perspective it's not even from the family's perspective that's why i'm like okay there's literally a witch out there in the woods because i don't think that there's anybody who's making up that story in their mind that we're peering into but then the way that the mother and father die is very much just like something that could happen and the dad asking god to basically kill him and then the ram runs into him is just like it's just beautiful. What great writing. It's amazing. Like, poetic. Uh, poetic. The fact that we can all take it any way we want. And I do want to expound upon what Kevin said, because that was kind of my big uh, haha reveal. Uh, I was doing a lot of um, research into the uh, the shining aspect of it, in the fact that it was literally about uh, Tomlinson going crazy, and uh, whether or not it's from the uh, fungus or not, that's debatable. But I came across the YouTube channel, I want to get this right, because this wasn't my original idea, and I never want to, like, pass off my ideas as not my own. This was by Rant and Bollocks uh, YouTube channel. Check them out, please. It's an amazing 20-minute video. Um, and they basically say what Kevin says, because it, it doesn't. it's happenstance that it takes 60 years before the Salem Witch Trials. So this is a story about a family that Puritans tell their their children and stuff about like all this uh you know the fall of the people that went away from puritan belief because you know they left because of religious differences so it's really about a folk tale about witchcraft that really ignited the uh, salem witch trials and i think that's such a like a profound statement that it's a russian doll story it's a story about a story and i just think that blows my mind so i think kelly at the end is right it's about both because it's supernatural but it's based on, you know, probably a family that they found where all the goats were dead, their house destroyed, all the family members either dead or gone, and they said, it must have been Satan. Because the only <laughs> the only times that we see satanic uh, imagery is either off-screen from the family or what, what happens in the family's heads. So I really think there's some a validity in that, and I am going to take that as gospel. But yeah, I mean, I literally, any any answer is the right answer, and that's what I love about this podcast is because we're all right at the end because the ambiguity is just so chef's kiss. Anyways, you hear that, listeners? We're all right, and so exactly. are you. Exactly, and whatever you subscribe to, listener, that is um, your <laughs> that is your gospel. Um, so going back to the horror element of the film, to call it scary or disturbing, uh, in my opinion, would be a bit of an exaggeration. But the score by Mark Corvin, it really makes this movie 
it makes me feel tense the entire time. Was this film true in its goals to frighten all of you? It's not frightening in a slasher sense or anything. But I think that the majority of people, we keep talking about that at 10 minutes you see a baby smashed. That's extremely unpalatable to most people. (laughs) And we're all sickos for smiling about it every time we've been bringing it up. Though they're not like, I don't know, I'm not in fear of my life or anything. They have a few jump scares in this movie, but they're done in a really unique and fresh kind of way. And it's very much enhanced by the score. I don't know where to place this movie as far as genre goes, because I feel like it's not quite a horror. But if you didn't call it a horror and somebody watched it and saw what they are going to see, not expecting it, that's not fair to them either. So at the end of the day, what do I want to say about this? It's not scary. It's dreadful and artful. That's probably where I would place it. All right, Eric, you were going to jump in first. Yeah, I so I, I still consider this a horror. The third time watching this, I wasn't, like, exactly scared by it. But, like, there is definitely disturbing imagery in here. Like, we were just saying, the witch uh, mashing the baby. But, like, also, uh, Caleb, the apple coming out of his mouth. You don't know what's coming out at, at that time. And then you see it's an apple. But you're like, what the fuck's going on there? The old witch biting slash sucking the goat's udders. You know, that's very... Uh, very disturbing. So there's a lot of disturbing imagery in here, I feel. It can fall in the category of horror. I can say it's disturbing, but it's not exactly as scary as, uh, say, uh, Hereditary, where there's way more that goes on under the surface there. There's more jump scares. And this one, I don't think its intention was to scare you as much as it was to disturb you. Kevin, my, my, my music man, um, the score specifically is what I wanted to get at this. I'm, I'm very glad you guys put your two, two cents into it. But Kevin, what about the score? Did it not put you on, you know, the uneasy street the entire hour and a half runtime? 150%. So our, uh, our writer-director basically showed his hand right off the bat. We get the most intense side of this score right off of the flipping bat. As this family is leaving our uh, commonwealth and going off into the woods, we just have a screeching uh, score of, of string instruments. Very classic horror trope sounding. Something that is very meant only to put you on complete um, edge. I did find it interesting that uh, he insisted on having kind of uh, period piece uh, musician or um instruments in this so anything you heard uh, you would hear likely in that time period as far as some of the the more unique string instruments that you would see out there i think that we kind of touched on it earlier when we talked about that roller coaster aspect or the fact that it goes from start to finish um, on one way that's mostly because the score is so consistent throughout the entire film Um, while i was writing my notes for this i put on the score behind me on spotify and just kind of re-listened to it as i was going along and uh it really does a great job of of kind of putting you in that idea that anything can happen at any given point in time. This might be a bit of a stretch on another theme here, but while we're talking about it, I really like the idea of the forced anxiety. Um, And every single aspect of this film from start to finish, you feel that in there. But I also thought about what if you were a, a Puritan in that time period? And if you were a Puritan in that time period, you are living under religious anxiety, right? You believe that God... Uh, is going to punish you for for everything, that you were born into sin, that nothing that you can do in your life is going to be good enough for God, and all you can hope for is to pray hard enough to get into heaven. 
I think it's kind of a, a unique comparison to how you feel throughout this entire movie as well, that you're oppressed by something, whether it be this evil witch or maybe just kind of the way that the music makes you feel, but you certainly feel kind of a little bit claustrophobic, a little bit that you can't escape whatever you're trying to get away from. And that's very much because of the effort that our, our composer put in um, and how the score really fe felt uh, fit the movie in general. I feel like you made a deal with Black Phillip because you are stealing all my thunder tonight, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes, yes, I would greatly uh, akin the music, which, by the way, is not to beat a dead horse talking about The Shining, but the score rivals The Shining. It rivals Jaws. It is, mm -hmm. it is something that, like I said, it makes me feel on edge the entire movie, and they're just having regular-ass conversations. They're just about to shoot a rabbit. You know, it's just mundane things, and the score heightens that to 100%, and then... It pays off in the end brilliantly. But yes, I do think that the score is to reflect their guilty conscience. I believe that they all believe that they're horrible sinners. They're all worried about Samuel because he was unbaptized. And I feel like the score represents that, that every moment for them is, I cannot sin otherwise. If I die in my next heartbeat, I'm going to hell. So Kevin, greatly put. Kelly? Right, and in that, we know that's, that's how they feel, and then we get that situational kind of thing where we know when they're lying to each exactly. other. Exactly. Even when it's something that's like as nice as Caleb saying, we were looking for apples for you, Mom, or the dad withholding the fact that he sold this prized silver, gob silver goblet. These are the kind of things where we're like, ooh, I knew that they just they just did a sin right there. Like the witch is the devil has an opportunity to get them now. That's just like another like goosebump kind of moment for a what <laughs> like a viewer. Yes, Kevin, before you burst. Um uh we talk about the devil coming in and a moment that allows the devil to enter. Someone uh was commenting on the internet that the original sin of the family is the selling of the silver cup and that everything that happens kind of after that kind of period is is allowing Satan to kind of enter into that household. And I kind of was like, oh man, like what if what if he bought Black Philip with the silver cup money? And then he brought in Satan himself with the first sin of the pure, of the Puritans. I was just like, oh man, you could just keep well, going. Well, we know he buys he buys his trapping gear right. with the silver cup, and I love that he is this man who's just like incompetent in what he needs to do to grow crops and to hunt, and he's not like he's not built for that. He got in trouble for preaching the word of Jesus in a way that they didn't agree with or something. And you know what? I he's not like incompetent that. at Kelly though. Is, is chopping wood. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a pro lumberjack, though. He's got that down. He, he loves that. That man slaps a good log. I will tell you what. I mean, if that actor isn't the world's best log chopper at this point in his life, I mean. But don't, do we need to talk about that, that aspect of, of our main character? The fact that he really doesn't bring anything and that his pride of, of being the man, of being the guy... He talks about it constantly in interviews, um, Mr. Eggers, about how this reeks of The Shining. He talks about it smelling like The Shining, and he's concerned <laughs> that it's going to be too much like The Shining. And he's very, very well aware of the comparisons, put it that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I love that we got uh, in touch with the Puritan side of all this, because I think we can all agree that theology plays a big role in the film. 
And the characters each reflect major sins. Caleb represents lust. Catherine represents wrath and envy. William represents pride. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Jonas and Mercy represent sloth. And Samuel represents original sin. What do you think of the cast and the perspective they brought uh, in Tomlinson's downfall? Do you think that uh, the family itself was, I guess, in more or less of a term, the serpent tempting Eve to join evil? <laughs> Kevin? <laughs> hmm. What is the serpent in this circumstance? I think that, honestly, the, uh, the serpent in all of this is the natural want and desire of a young woman to become more than what she's allowed to be. We realize that our character in Anya Taylor-Joy, is she's the main character from the very beginning. Okay, she is the focus of this because she's the first person that we see. So we know that yeah. that character, everything about this film is going to necessarily revolve around her interactions with the family, her interactions with the witch, I guess, um, and her interactions in general across the whole board. So we kind of have to kind of focus what we're going to feel throughout this entire movie based on, on, on her performance and what she brings to, to all of it. Um, so I think that if you focus on that aspect you, you really um kind of see what the rest of the film is going for excellent kelly what do you, do you think the family is a symbolism for the uh downfall of tomlinson and the way that she eventually gives into the devil spoiler alert do you think uh like what do you think of the characters that are, are surrounded around her i guess is, is the main yeah. question I like that you pointed out our seven deadly sins. I knew definitely the pride of the father. It was a problem and probably set them off in the wrong direction right from the beginning. The mom wanted to go back. She's like, we should have never even done this, but it's his pride that got them there. And then the mom is so wrathful and angry. She's never going to forgive her daughter for what happened to the baby. And that's just going to, that just, so both the mother and the father have this like compounding problem that then affects and falls down into the whole family on top of that Tomlinson, our main character literally in the movie becomes a woman and that part is uh talked about as well and i think that there's a reason that they bring it up too because that is the start uh that's she's growing up she's finding her independence she's ready she's mouths off to her dad about what i just mentioned with his incompetence and it's blamed that that's the devil speaking out of her. But what it really is, is she's not going to be a submissive wife. Like, that's not going to be the role that's defined to her. And she's being crafted based on the way that her parents are behaving as a result of their quote-unquote sin. Yeah. Just trains she's of just thought. Great... Just tons of different yeah. things happening while we're having this discussion. It's just mind-blowing to me. Like you said, Kelly, they make a mention of it for a reason. They make it a, a focus in this because, let's think about real life back in the 1600s. If, if women were having no, the, there was no independence for women. If a woman had ever had a thought of being a leader, of speaking out, of having an opinion, of doing anything else, they would have been shut down by society immediately. But now you don't have society. Now it's just you in the woods. Now it's just you in whatever you're feeling because there's nothing else to tell you otherwise. And I think that's just such a brilliant you know, concept in general and kind of what that looks like and the exploration of of her character and what it even looks like at the end. Like we see her at the end. You know, we'll talk about it then, but it's just brilliant. Just chef's kiss, just her performance in general. 
I think a lot of what this movie has to say, too, is that uh, shame can lead to violence and toxicity in general. Uh, and there's actually a quote from here. I have in secret played upon thy Sabbath and broken every one of thy commandments and thought, follow the desires of my own will, and not the Holy Spirit. I know, I know I deserve all shame and misery in this life and everlasting hellfire, but I beg thee for the sake of thy son. So it's in old New England and in people that are very religious, there's a lot of shame that's involved. And shame can turn into violence, you know? Shame can turn into toxicity because it's this thing building up inside of you where you are blaming yourself for something and then you start lashing out at other people because of the shame you have in your own life. And I think that's a big thing to say about this film and also just about old New England, old America in general, maybe even uh, modern America too. But, you know. That's for another date. Yeah, yeah we'll set it. Parallels. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because, okay, so I definitely had the uh, feminism as a note, and I think you guys all hit it beautifully, by the way. We see it actually kind of interestingly in that opening scene with the um, uh, the trial or the meeting house. I mean, you probably noticed that you had half of the women on one side and half of the men completely on the other. And then later in the movie, we also get the dinner scene where we have um, William preaching over the front like it's the Last Supper, and all the ladies are on one side and all the men are on the other. So it's just that, you know, quite drive down the middle. And Thomason, this whole film, was about to get her period. The parents were talking about marrying her to somebody else right after she got her period. Back then, when you bled, you would get married off. Sorry for people that are... No, no, not sorry. Fuck you. No. And yeah, that's what I was alluding to. And I was like, it's should not I just only, say period? It's just about, not only that, but it's about the religious side of things, too. Yeah. Like, the reason yeah. they did it is because they felt that separating the daughter away from the mother and the family was a way to bring mm-hmm. her closer to God. And that was the most yeah. important part on your role as a female was to, to be that religious aspect to your family. So she knew yeah. exactly what was coming. And he was going to yeah. sell her off, essentially. It, it yeah. would have been like a classic barter thing where hey you marry my uh my daughter you you give me some sheep and uh we'll call it yeah. a day yeah you we're know? good to sell my bleeding daughter so that <laughs> i can keep my family alive she can yeah. make you a whole bunch of kids and we'll be fine this is for the good of the family good of the family good of the people good of <laughs> <Yeah>. the heart <gasps> you heard it here first it's a coming of age story also it's <laughs> <laughs> not wrong also in a new england sense yeah also, none of you ever got a period. You would feel the same way if it happened to you. So let's talk about. Uh, I'm gonna call it ending part one because I really feel like there's an ending and there's an epilogue to this film. Tomlinson and Caleb go out uh, to the trap and uh, to collect a dead animal so they can feed. The devil intervenes. Caleb gets lost, and he comes back eventually, and he basically has terrible fits and throws up an apple, like Eric said, and almost dies. Uh, that's when the family really starts butting heads and everyone starts pointing fingers. W- what would you do in this situation if you're Tomlinson, as everyone is blaming you of being a witch, and she points fingers at Mercy and Jonas? Kevin, what did you feel about the ending? The ending, not the epilogue. So uh, I thought that that part of the movie was my most uh, my most favorite. I enjoyed it the most uh, in general, mostly because there was something that was different every time it came to that conclusion you know i didn't really know where it was going to go honestly throughout this entire film i kind of thought it was going to end up with them going back to town and someone trying to light someone on fire like most of the witches movies do and i'm glad it didn't go that route it was very interesting for me i was totally caught off guard when when black 
Peter or Black Philip uh, ends Phillip. up. Uh, I don't know why I keep calling Black Peter. Is I think is a, another uh, character in, in mythology of some sort. Anyway, when he gores William completely out of nowhere, I uh, really enjoyed that because it kind of caught me off guard. And everything that happened after that, I didn't see coming. And I love that when a film gives me something I don't expect. Uh, from the mother, uh, you know, straight up attacking uh, her daughter to, to the lengths that she had to go to defend herself to, you know, our, our hook-nosed witch showing up in the, you know, barn and eating the goat. It was just, the whole thing was just excellent. I really enjoyed the way they went with it. It surprised me at every turn. Um, and I thought that it brought the supernatural aspect to real forefront and reminded me that I was watching a horror movie and that there was anxiety abound. So just good job. Excellent. Eric, what, again, I think the ending can be defined pretty much anywhere between Caleb coming back and, uh, Tomlinson falling asleep on the, uh, kitchen table so what did you feel about the end <laughs> i mean i think it can be thomason giving into temptation finally uh she was a quote-unquote god-fearing woman this whole movie uh and it, it's finally her you know kind of giving into temptation but really it's about her being free from the constraints of you know this puritan family this extremely religious family and it's about her letting go and in a sense being herself, you know, and in the sense of the film, it's it's really about her. She finally comes into being a witch. There's something to be said about how she is growing up at this point and her family was extremely restrictive of her, made her very God-fearing, and then she her whole family dies and she's just like, okay, you know, I, I can either go on, go back to this plantation over here, or... Lucifer can, uh, you know, give me butter, let me live deliciously, let me see the world. I think I'll take that off. <laughs> butter. I didn't know any of that was against Puritan belief, but I... <laughs> Kelly, <laughs> same question. Um, ending. Yeah. Also, quick, quick aside, Kevin, since you brought it up, what do you think um, uh, William just let uh, Black Philip gore him at the end? He had the chance to pick up the axe. Do you want do you want my actual answer? Because it's kind of a little bit elaborate. Okay, I want to hear Kelly first, and then we'll go with that as a separate question. Excellent. Yeah, what I was alluding to with Black Philip versus William, William prays in the rain. Like he just gives up to God and is like, however you're gonna get rid of me, just do it. Just let it happen. And then the next day he gets gored. <laughs> by the devil, maybe. Question but mark? I think that there's some other other scenes that I want to touch on in like this, like this. Yeah, I know it's it's area that we're yeah. <laughs> grabbing real quick, but just like Caleb and his lust, and he gets what he deserves for trying to look at his sister's cleavage. And I love that the witch comes to him in the form of like big titty got goth gf. <laughs> I love that. That's a whole thing. I love that he has bite marks on his face from her kissing him. That kind of touch. The whole like almost possession and then release of that whole scene. And he, I don't know well, that the he twins. Sees Jesus apparently. Yeah. Right. I mean, Jesus yeah. came. But was that Satan? Came and took care of was him. That Satan supposedly. being like, "Hey, your hey parents, your kid's gonna be fine. He'll be fine. Just hear me quote." Or is it actually Jesus? I love that the twins weren't able to recite their prayers because they've been dancing around with ooh, Black Philip throughout ooh. the whole movie. I don't know if that's that true, was a great though. piece. I think. Go ahead, sorry. Um, I'm, I'm talking about it. And one more spot that I just want to call out that for me is the 
the humor of the whole movie and the part where I laughed the loudest is when Caleb goes missing and the whole family starts to walk towards the ominous woods and you see the two twins are just tied up to the fence. Yes, that like, was perfect. Trying to keep them safe for a and moment. they're just flailing. That just go. killed me. Loved that moment. I do I do think that um, that scene with Caleb, like, I, I don't really know who the actor is, but I get uh, Reagan from The Exorcist vibes about how, like, yeah. his body's convulsing. He's screaming like these like tongues basically, and Harvey Scrimshaw apparently it's his. Well, he was phenomenal. Anyway. I can't believe yeah. he didn't like keep mm-hmm. going on it unless he has. Yeah, that was a really good job. But that scene was so like powerful to me, and I do have to disagree with Kelly a little bit. Mercy and Jonas, I think they were still playing an act against um, Tomlinson at that point. I think they purposely. Mm-hmm. Uh, did not um, remember the Lord's Prayer, and they were like bending over because a few scenes towards yeah, the a, a few scenes later, you know, uh, William, you know, drags her out, and then she tears yep. him an absolute new asshole, which was amazing. And then they come back in because she accuses them to talking to Black Philip, mm-hmm. and then he does this whole like godly speech, and he's like, "I should bash their heads in right now," and that's when Jonas wakes up and starts screaming. So I do think they were putting on an act that they were talking to Black Phillip. Does that mean, though, that how would they not be scared enough by what's happening to their brother that they would do everything in their power to try to help well, him? Well, I think their mother is crazy enough where they're actually on her side. Um, they know how much uh, Could be. their mother has contempt for Tomlinson. And it's such an easy scapegoat, again, pun intended, Um <laughs> For Tomlinson to uh, take the blame and, you know, they're, they're all going through this terrible time right now and they're all starving and I think, you know, they're fighting so hard at each other that it bends against itself. And I think that Mercy and uh, Jonas that, you know, they're basically enjoyed at the hip. So they will do anything to make sure that, you know, their family goes back to the way it was. And what started that? Uh, that was Tomlinson losing Samuel. Just one more thing we probably have to touch on caleb is going through puberty at the same time as thomason and caleb is yeah looking at her boobs and uh it leads to some very awkward sexual tension between brother and sister it's an uneasy point in the movie and i i kind of like how he put that in there because i feel like in if, if you're li- living in this old new england like family and there's no one else around you you're going through puberty I don't know. Yeah, like, Caleb, is he excused of that? I don't know. Is he? I think so. I think he is. He got what he deserved. <laughs> I mean, he it's clear that he knows what he's doing is wrong, and I think that's a very yeah. good point yeah, it's clear. In, in, yeah. in the film as well. Um, yeah. And what Kelly mentioned is when the witch ends up seducing him, it's like, legs out the door first. Like, that's, that's yeah. the way they're going <laughs> with it, leading all the way. Uh, but what I kind of wanted to touch on earlier, if we're good kind of rolling back that way, is if we're looking at the end of the film and um, Black Philip goring our, our main character, there's a couple references to an Old Testament book of the Bible, uh, the book of Job, throughout this entire film. Um, we get references, well, just as a small aside, basically Job was a pious, rich individual in the Old Testament, and Satan and God had a bet 
where Satan said, I bet you he wouldn't love you so much if you did some bad stuff to him. And God said, yeah, well, watch this. And then God does a whole bunch of bad stuff to Job. He ends up, you know, cursing his whole family, killing all 10 of his children, doing all of the terrible things that happen in the world. Um, and a certain quote from that book of the Bible basically comes along the lines of where Job's at the end of his rope and he is just ready to curse God. And he says something along the lines of corruption, you are my father. Um, and worm, you are my mother. So basically talking about death and pestilence being the acceptance of his life at this point. And so that last line that we have where William screams at the goat, corruption, you are my father, is a direct line mm -hmm. from the Bible. Um, and one that is very relevant to the the rest of the film and kind of the theme that they were going for. So I just loved that connection. I thought it was really brilliant. And Catherine mentions earlier as well that she didn't, she doesn't want to become like Job's wife. And that's when she's basically given up. She loses her religion and has a fever dream because of it, because she let the devil in. It just shows you that the Puritans, just the, the Old Testament was their everything. Like That was the entire <laughs> reason that their uh, offshoot of religion even existed at all. So they were pissed off at the Roman Catholic Church for all of their you know ridiculous hedonistic ceremonies and things like that. They're like, no, go back to the Bible. And that's where mm -hmm. this entire thing even comes from in general, from a historical reference. The uh, hallucination that Catherine has and it ends up a uh, crow eating her, her boobs. <laughs> her tatas. But she, one boob, yeah, just, right? Just the one, one, just the boob. one. I'm sorry. Yeah. But she yeah. but, picked, picked a nipple clean off, probably. Uh, but yeah, the, yeah, straight, straight off the... So, again, going through this psychological versus supernatural... She wakes up and there is a blood stain on her mm -hmm. on her breast. So what what is that about? <laughs> I once had a dream a dog was biting me, and when I woke up, I was squeezing my own arm with all my might. <laughs> so you think it was solving? Well, okay, but you guys can't say that it's supernatural and then explain it away. No, I'm just giving I'm just giving a a side story. No, I definitely because there's a reference that we hear what we later find out is likely Satan's voice speaking to her through her dead sons and wanting to get her name written down in his book. Yeah, he, he was going for her. She He wanted her to be a yeah. witch too. That was brilliant. At the start of the movie, the uh, wife, uh, she says, was Christ not led into the wilderness to be ill met by the devil? And I think back then, the, the wilderness and everything about it, well, there were Native Americans out there at that point, but also it was looked at as this devilish place, you know, like a place of heathens. And I, I think this was her, she was succumbing to the wilderness that was defeating them at that point. As they said at the start of the movie, the husband was like, we, we will defeat this wilderness, basically. It will not consume and, us, is what the yeah, quote is. It will not consume yes, us. Yes, we yeah. will consume it. And that, that crow biting at her nipple was the wilderness finally overtaking her. That whole scene in general so, is just like, wow. Yeah. So I, I think bizarre. that this, uh, so bizarre. this movie has a lot to say about, you know, society versus the wilderness, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think... Yeah. You know, the, the old phrase takes a village um, really comes into play. Yeah. Um, I think it's <laughs> I think it's interesting that they talk about other traders. You briefly see the plantation that they were on at the beginning. But really, as soon as they get on their own, it is isolation the entire movie. And I mm -hmm. think that is intentionally done. I think the isolation is 
you know, the way that you guys are talking about, you know, where the devil is actually there. It almost feels like the devil has cut them off from society because they, they get to the point where, you know, they've had so many outs to go back to the plantation just to say, sorry, you know, I'm sorry I preached the word wrong. Mm-hmm. And then the horse leaves, the dog leaves, they have no food, mm-hmm. you know, the, it, it keeps like piling, piling up. And then they're finally like stuck again with their sins that they have brought upon themselves. And then they're bogged down until they turn against each other. So I think isolation in the end, it's yeah, it's the, the dad's pride for him, like not wanting to go back. It, it's what leads the whole family to death. And I think basically. he realizes at the end, right, when yeah. he's on his yep. knees screaming in the rain, and yes. he's like, I yep. did all of this, just save my family. That's all I care about is yeah. just save my family. But then he goes on to try to kill his daughter. Right, so. yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Well, she did blow up the barn. I mean, what would you do, man? She yeah. <laughs> I don't think she blew up the barn. I mean, she just kind of woke up, right? Yeah, like, who's Satan, yeah. come on. Just sure looked like she was responsible. Yeah, the witch was literally sucking a goat's udder right in the middle of the night, and then the kids died, and uh, the barn was just fucked. At, we don't at see that point. what happens to the twins. Yeah, we we don't really. see Well, what you know what's funny though. Um, it I don't know if it's uh, foreshadowing or not, but um, when Mercy comes to poke fun at uh, Tomlinson for killing their baby brother <laughs> um, yeah. she right. does come in flying on a broomstick and a- yep. apparently they must have flown off so you know that's just kind of an interesting little uh potential well the witch did land on the roof right as they were sitting in that barn she she came down from the sky she landed on the roof she mentioned it to her father right after that and we we definitely saw that in the baby mashing scene right she was lubing up that broomstick so we know that's what she's going for I was telling Eric about how I'm so happy we had a proper, like, haggy witch cackle. Yeah. That wasn't just, like, silly. It was actually, a, like, it actually put a put a little bit of fear in me where I'm like, oh, I can understand yep. why a witch is scary and not just funny now. That, it, I'm glad that we still got a good cackle. This film is it's true to the time, but then also hits on all the witch tropes, which is what I love about yeah, it. Yeah, he did such a great amount of research yeah. on all of the fairy tale sides yeah. of what makes witch stories just so iconic. Well, yeah, he makes he makes witches scary, which is very hard because they've been so mm-hmm. neutered throughout the years to be a kid friendly. You know, you think of Hocus Pocus. <laughs> this ain't of... Hocus Pocus, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I think they did a really good job. I, I think it's time to get to the end end. Um, an ending that I yep. don't believe in, uh, by the way. I think when <laughs> when Tomlinson puts her head down on the table, she either starves to death or goes back to the plantation, or she becomes a woman of the woods. I don't know. But it's the ending two, which I like to call the epilogue. And that is when she makes the proverbial deal with the devil. And I think this is interesting. Again, this is, goes back to my whole... Um, shining um theory it's because the rest of the movie is so dour and the the lighting and the tone is so dark and then she takes this pack with the devil and it's all of a sudden you see vibrant reds you see vibrant pinks vibrant purples and you see this fantastical things you see naked women floating in the air as they're chanting in these um pagan rituals and she floats eventually floats with them and movie ends so Eric, I want to start with you. What did you feel about the last five minutes of this movie? Do you think it happened? See, that that's where, when we started this podcast, I said you could go in a fork in the road. You could believe that this was all, or got poisoning. It was all psychosis, 
hallucinations, or you could actually believe that there was supernatural things going on, and that there was actually a witch in the woods, that uh, Black Philip was actually the devil. And I don't think it matters if you believe either. Robert Eggers definitely wanted it to be ambiguous, and you can believe either or if you want. I'm going to choose to believe the witchy side of it because it's way more fun, and I'm going to choose to believe that uh, Thomason went into the woods, got around all these other witches, and started floating to the moon. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's what I'm going to believe, and I think that's what happened. Kelly, Kelly, yeah. what do you think of the end, end, end? I think for me, it doesn't matter if it happened or not. I think it, what matters is that it was included. Because for my, I haven't watched this since 2016. It was actually the, one of the first movies Eric and I watched together when we started dating. So mm-hmm. now we've been happily married for years. So you can watch The like, Witch hey, and maybe it'll I'm happen dating to you, you. Watch listeners. this really fucked up movie. <laughs> I would absolutely sounds perfect. Yeah. But what I will say with this rewatch is that that is the stickiest part of the movie for me. That everything that happens at that end is everything that I remembered about the whole movie. I remembered it being good, but the whole end, and I'm glad, uh, Blaze, that you mentioned the difference in cinematography where before it's very cold and like has this kind of like metallic texture to it. And then it turns into warm and velvety and like just like luxurious like a cloud, cinematography. Like a cloud. Yeah, it's like yeah, like you could reach out and you could touch this and it would be soft. And it's it's just this night and day difference. And it's just for that very very end piece and the image of her flying into the sky and all the pleasure that it gives her. Like that's all of that part is what stuck with me the most visually and made the biggest impact. So it's an absolute necessity that it was included in this movie, whether you think that it happened or not. I guess if I had to choose, I would say I want it to happen because I want one quote-unquote good thing to happen after a whole entire movie of tragedy. Kelly, (laughs) love Satanism. (laughs) Endorses it almost. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, I want to hear your opinion. After Tomlinson... Uh, kills her mother. We get that scene where she rolls the corpse off of her, and we just get that red, bright red bloodshot on her, and then what kind of happens after that scene to me is all just brilliant. So, of course we get the scene where she goes back into the barn after her nap, and asks the goat to speak to her. Did you communicate with my siblings? Like, just... And of course, as a viewer, I'm kind of like, all right, you, what, what's the goat going to do? Say say yes, talk back to you? And all of a sudden, I described it as a holy shit moment because that <laughs> damn goat starts talking in the most velvety Satan voice ever. And I was just like, fuck yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah. Like, it was, I'd give into that voice. I wanted to embrace everything about that moment. <laughs> I was really excited as a as a fan of the Basie movie. Voice. I was just like, "Damn straight, you you better take his offer. Like everybody else is dead, you just go ahead and you live your delicious life." And throughout that, like Kelly said, her just the pure joy of her face as she ascending, I thought that was brilliant. The choice of putting her in the classic crucified Christ pose was super oh, yeah. interesting to me. Like that's the last picture we get is her in the very obvious picture scene of what jesus looks like when he's crucified and i was just like wow 
okay, we're going, she's a straight-up witch and just made a deal with the devil, and now that's the last scene that we get is a, is a comparison to Jesus. I loved it. I loved every minute. It it was memorable. It was something that really solidified this as a as a horror movie to me, as something that I should take as a as a memorable piece. And I do appreciate your description of this as an epilogue, though, Blaze, because I do think that it's a very interesting uh, aspect that I didn't really think of. Like, oh yeah, because you you could have ended it right there, right? When it goes to black mm-hmm. after her nap, you absolutely could hit the credits. And when I was watching, I would have been like, cool, that's the end. You know, live it up to your imagination. But then we almost get a happy ending. It's not necessarily a happy ending because there's a bunch of death and destruction behind it. But well, it, that's what the movie does to yeah. you. Yeah. When Blaze was like, Kelly likes Satanism. I'm like, no, I don't. But in this movie, I'm happy that it happened for her. Right, exactly. Because that's your main character and you feel for her and you want her to succeed and you want her to be happy. And everyone else was just death and destruction and she ended up coming out on top. So loved the ending, thought it was brilliant and uh, very much a reason why this movie is memorable. Absolutely. I, I think I think we can all agree, like, again, whether it happened or not, she does get her vindication at the end. And I just think, um, you know, irony is so hard to find, but the fact that her family eventually turned her into becoming a witch is one of the most poetically ironic things mm-hmm. of, like, cinema mm-hmm. history. But yeah, I, I, I see it as the epilogue because I feel like it's... Uh, it's more fantastical than uh, anything that we'd seen in the movie previously. And that includes seeing a witch suck on some goat titties. (laughs) 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 Anyways, so as we're wrapping up here, does anyone want to add anything? I know, like I said, we kind of skipped through a lot of specific scenes. Uh, I did that on purpose because I think this is, this, this film is more of a vibe, more of a theme than it is specific scenes. Yeah. A couple trivia points just for the sake, because we like to point out the weird things that kind of go on. Um, Charlie the Goat is the the goat actor in this particular film. Apparently, he was an absolute pain in the ass to work with. Uh, like, very hard. It was not trained. He sent our main actor, um, what's his face, Ralph uh, Ensign, to the ER three different times during the filming of this movie. Uh, broke his ribs. Like, just did, was just generally a, a dick. So, shout out to Charlie the Goat for actually personifying Satan during the filming of this movie. Um, also, I love the idea that it made $40 million on a budget of four. I thought that was brilliant. Just like, you know, a lot of these A24 movies we talk about, they just have a huge, huge budget and they get zero money in their distribution. And, uh, it was cool to see that the American audience has kind of picked that up. And I thought that was cool. Uh, and the last trivia part is that, uh, we really, um, uh, Robert Eggers really wanted to film this in authentic New England, but because of tax breaks and not having a whole lot of money and this being his first film, he had to settle for middle of bumfuck Ontario, Canada to film this out in the middle of woods. And he said it was really, really difficult to do. They filmed it in 26 days. So that's a straight shoot out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And it actually turned out to be a good um, like a bonding moment for all of the cast and everything. But I thought that was a cool trivia point there. Uh, just a couple things that we didn't really know about the movie. And now we know. 26 days is incredible for this film. Like that kind of blows my mind. But what I was going to say is a lot of the times when we're discussing these movies, we spend a lot of time talking about the actors themselves and how good of a job we feel like they portrayed. We really haven't touched on that with in this conversation. And I think that that goes to show how immersive this movie is and how much of a great job every single person and child involved and animal charlie shout out they all did their like 
they acted their hearts out and they made all very believable characters and they spoke a very difficult dialect completely convincingly like it was their first language so there's no notes that i would give any of these actors other than great job i believed your characters right there's a reason that this launched anya taylor joy's career like she did such a just incredible job for being a no-name actress before this and here we are seeing her all over the place oh absolutely and i just to touch on that another fun fact eggers his the first actress tape that he saw was anya taylor joy's and he dismissed it at first because he knew her as a model and she was just getting into acting. He's like, no, that was just a one take, the one in a million shot that she had a good take. So they made her come back because it was a good tape. And he's like, oh my God, she's like the real deal once she did like the in-person. So um, yeah, completely changed her career trajectory by a million miles. And okay, so it is time for our favorite part of the show grades now usually i don't like picking on the newbie but kevin i think i want to hear your grade first because i kind of know what eric's is going to be and i kind of know what kelly's is going to be i want to know what yours is first all right i feel like i've done a pretty decent job of kind of revealing my opinion on this film throughout this review um kind of touching on some of the things that i really enjoyed about it very few little things that i didn't really enjoy mostly about the pacing uh, but for me this was an experience and for a couple different reasons when i joined this podcast i knew jack shit about a24 i knew jack shit about movies but one movie that came out in conversations amongst you all was the witch so knowing about this movie from day one of recording this podcast has kind of given it an air of anticipation for when i actually got to it I really wanted to put myself in the right mindset, in the right place to watch this film. I dedicated a time and a place where I wasn't going to be interrupted, that I was going to be in a darkened space where I could really just embrace this movie. I'm not a fan of horror in general. In fact, I avoid it actively. So for me to sit down and really kind of embrace what I was going to see made this movie all the better. I didn't watch any trailers. I didn't read any descriptions. I truly went into this completely blind, and I'm coming out the other side a big fan. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have been otherwise. I do think that watching it, no matter where I would have seen it, probably would have resulted in a similar experience. But I really do think that the way I approach this movie makes me appreciate it all the better. Um, Getting into it from a technical standpoint, it is truly the coming out party for Robert Eggers. It's one of those where people watched The Lighthouse and realized that this movie existed and came back to it and gave him all more of kind of that clout and that power moving forward. I'm super excited to get to the rest of his films, uh, and I think that watching this one gives me kind of more of a, of a, of a ready-to-go vibe when it comes to watching those other films. I'm an active Robert Eggers fanboy now, so congratulations on that. That's pretty much all you need to know about the rest of this film. Um, the performances were fantastic. We alluded to them earlier. Everybody top down and played a critical role in establishing this film and the immersiveness of it. We don't get into the vibe if we don't feel the story of every single family member, um, all of their concerns, all of their successes, all of the things that happened throughout the film to each of them. We all kind of feel it. The cinematography was brilliant from the long standing shots of the opening vibes with the tree. Um, when they first come up to their little uh, plantation, to the long shots of the nature in general, uh, to some of the the more spooky things. Yeah, there was some really disturbing imagery, but it never lasted long enough for it to be 
a turnoff. It never lasted long enough for me to go, man, I really don't want to watch this movie anymore. It was brief and it was effective and it allowed the plot to continue. Um, and for that, I was really appreciative. Uh, I hate gore in general, but this movie did it in a very classy way that made something even as extreme as grinding up a baby within the 10 minutes palatable and made it more interesting to see where the rest of the film was going to go. I really enjoyed what they were going for across the board from a historical standpoint, from a visual standpoint, from a storyline standpoint. If I had to give it any criticism, because I feel like every movie probably has somewhere at all, it did slow down in some of the long dialogue spots in the middle between some of the actions where it kind of had my mind wandering a little bit about what happened at the end. Um, minus that, though, this was an excellent movie from start to finish. It was something that I would recommend to my friends, to my movie lovers um, in general, something that I would tote this podcast on as, hey, listen to this episode because it's well worth our, our discussion. Um, and for all those reasons, it's going to definitely get an A24 for me. Um, it's something I can't wait to go watch again, and I uh, just want to keep diving into it for, for future episodes. So great job. Looking forward to for the rest of Robert Eggers, and uh, this movie was awesome. Amazing, amazing review. Eric, <laughs> let's hear your... your... Yeah. <laughs> so like I said, uh, this was like the third time of me watching it, and this third time I've kind of realized that this kind of kicked off the elevated horror genre. So there's the horror genre where you have slasher films, you have kind of psychological horrors. You, you do have things back in the day like Silence of the Lambs that are horror but aren't exactly what we consider nowadays like elevated horror. And Get Out came out uh, about two years from when this film came out. And The Witch, I feel like, kind of kicked off the elevated horror genre, which was a genre that has carried to this day that people are now saying like, okay, we have a horror film. What more can we say about it? How can we disturb people? How can we scare people into thinking, oh, wow. I've come away from this film disturbed, but also, like, it's changed me a bit. That's, I think, what Stephen King was trying to do, like, all these years. <laughs> and I think he did with some of his books. If you've been reading them, he has been trying to do that. Either way, um, Robert Eggers, you know, this was his first film, and it kicked off a tremendous career. And Anya Taylor-Joy, same thing, first uh, film for her, kicked off a tremendous career. It's a low-budget film, and they did a ton with it. Like, same with Ex Machina, which we reviewed uh, last season. They Low-budget film, they did so much with it. And I have to respect it a lot for that. And, yes, I'll give it a full A24. Not A24, but A24. Because ultimate A24 film, like, when you think of A24, you watch it. You come away with it wanting to read way more about it. Wanting to analyze it scene by scene dialogue by dialogue and that's why i purely love this film a24 for me wonderful man uh kelly can you top <laughs> these two great reviews or are you gonna dog shit it like you did spring breakers let's find out <laughs> please don't put this movie wow, spring breakers yeah, in just, the same what boat. are you doing <laughs> what are you even i'm just yeah. like giving my friend shit that's what i'm doing <laughs> woof <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna I'm just gonna keep mine short. I think that I already alluded to how I feel about this movie on a whole. I have already called it a work of art and that's what it is. And uh, like we've already talked about too, it just 
made such an impact on me the first time that I watched this movie. For me, this is what put A24 on the map that made me go out of my way to start finding A24 movies or after I saw a great movie and then I would find out it was A24 and I went, well, of course, The Witch was A24. So, And I feel like that made such an impact. Uh, it put Robert Eggers on the map as one of my favorite writer-directors of all time now. Everything that he's made is just... It makes me live deliciously. It's <laughs> such a work of art, everything that comes out here. What do we touch on? We touched on the cinematography, the score, the acting, the actual content as far as the story, as far as the, like we were said, attention to detail. And I feel so engaged and immersed by this movie. I care about what's happening to every character. It's everything that you could ever ask for. And... It made witches scary again. That's so... That is such... That's not as easy as it might sound. That's a very difficult thing to do, and it was amazingly done. Yeah, there's nothing I can say other than great words about this movie. It made a huge impact on me as a movie watcher, movie goer. So, um, an easy A24 to hand out to this one. All right. Well, just like Kelly, I'm going to keep this short and sweet as much as I can as well. I think Kevin and Eric really just said everything that i need to say about this and just like kelly this is the first film by a24 where it was distinctively a24 we can talk about the score the cinematography like that that was already like in place like that already made it good movies and then we can bring in the layers the allegories what's it really about you know the themes the overarching themes the undercurrents of feminism you know like we can dissect these movies if we really wanted to I purposely tried not to do that as the host, not to dissect every scene, because I really feel like we could take two hours of every scene and we could talk about strange fungus in corn that makes people psychotic, you know? Like, it's amazing, like, the theories and the fan theories that come out of this. And ambiguity is, like, it's very special to me in the terms of art in general. And as someone who loves film... I think the more ambiguity that the directors and writers let us have, the more that we can have these fun conversations. And that's why we do this podcast. We don't do this podcast for barely lethal. We do this podcast for X we do this podcast for X Machina. We do it for the witch. We're gonna do it for the lighthouse, hereditary, everything everyone wants, you know. So again, this is one of the fine pillars of A twenty four. I do have one issue with the accents, and I think we all, like, can get past it because how badly uh, Robert Eggers wanted us to be immersed into the film. So, unlike you cowards, I'm going to give this an A plus 24. It's actually going to be an up... (laughs) It's going to be an upside-down double V, two A's. Love it. Uh, Love it. (laughs) And, yeah, uh, this is one of the perfect films, and, of course... Everyone that I've ever met needs to watch this. We need to discuss this. And if you don't like it, we can't be friends anymore. Sorry, Mom. Peace. You know. (laughs) On that note, we seem to have tracked down Cole in the Mojave Desert. And he wants to give us his review of The Witch. Live deliciously, please. Hello, everyone. My name is Cole William Whitlaw Gibson, co-host of A24 on the Rocks. Currently stuck out in the Mojave, unable to make the recording tonight, 
but I did want to give you my quick witch rundown and review. This is a cinematic masterpiece, but just to touch on some of the high points, it's got naked old people, babies turned to peanut butter, Queen's Gambit girl, it's got Ralph doing his gruff, gritty, sexy old English voice, it's got a talking goat, and it's filmed in Ontario, Canada. What more could you ask for for a film? This is an A24 to the max. I appreciate everyone. Love you. Good night. But thank you guys, everyone. This is amazing. This is why we do this for you. We do this to talk to you. I want everyone to five-star rate us, like us, tell your friends about it. Please love us, like us. You know, this is going to be this gonna be a thing for me. I need to, you know, retire off of this. I just want to say thank, thank you, movie watchers and listeners to the show. And thank you, movie makers, especially yeah. Eggers himself. Hey, Robert Eggers, thank you. Appreciate you, guy.